Hello, and welcome to the final episode of Season 3 of The Zip Code Plays, a collection of original audio plays brought to you by Antius Theatre Company. I'm your host, Ramon Diocampo. And over the course of six plays, we've journeyed across a variety of landscapes as writers from our Playwrights Lab have transported us to Glendale, Burbank, Linwood, Griffith Park, Frogtown, and now onto our final destination, Hollywood. If you've missed any of the shows, please go back and dive in. We think you'll love them all. As always, we want to pause for a moment to acknowledge that all of our pieces were written, performed, and take place on the traditional land of the Gabrielino Tongva peoples. We pay our respect to the ancestors, elders, and relations, past, present, and emerging. Our own permanent home is at the Kiki and David Gindler Performing Arts Center in Glendale, where we look forward to gathering with you all in person soon. Until then, it's been a treat to bring you the audio plays of season three. And we hope you've enjoyed them as much as we've enjoyed creating them. As a company made up of theater, film, and television artists, it's a certainty that many of us at Antius are fascinated by the early days of filmmaking in LA. That's what inspired actor-writer Diana Burbano. She told us in an interview, quote, I'm obsessed with Hollywood history, especially the character actors, the backbone of any movie, the ones sooner forgotten than the glamorous or the scandalous. Imagine being remembered because you're just so damn good at your job. Inspirational. As an actor myself, I can totally relate. Diana transports us to a soundstage where filming is underway on the classic 1933 comedy Dinner at Eight in 90028 Hollywood. Marie Dressler, good gal. This copy is ridiculous. I never meant to steal the movie from Garbo. I mean, look at her and look at me. How can it be possible? Little old me. Don't flatter me. The truth is that as pretty and as mysterious as Greta seems, and she's a sweet kid, but she's also a little odd. Needed less misery and more mystery, if you know what I mean. For all Greta's charms, she's a closed book. Now, the camera loves her. Train a camera on her and no one else exists. That's why she was devoured in the silence. I think the camera catches something and that something makes men want to catch her. Me though, (laughs) no, no, not men. Men don't want to catch me. (laughs) Not even catch and release.
They get me on the hook. They scream and club me to death. <laughs> you don't have to worry about me, about hurting my feelings. You don't need to tell me I'm swell or anything. I'm not swell. I'm homely with a capital ha. <sighs> nah. Why be coy? Ugly. The ugliest of ugly ducklings. My pa said that to me all the time. Horrible man. Fate cast me to play the role of an ugly duckling with no promise of swanning. But the camera and me, we got a thing going on too. Not like Garbo, but we're good pals. I've played my life as a comedy rather than the tragedy many would have made of it. Oh, I'm allowed to say that. It's near the end of the line for me. Otherwise, what's with the fancy dinners and the night of a thousand stars, one reelers, and this publicity stunt I have to go to tonight? Gower Studio? I haven't been back in the Gulch since the Christie Brothers comedies? <sighs> Sheesh. Hollywood's changed a lot since then. I mourn the orange groves. Just like you'll mourn me. At least I hope you will. I'm still in my soul, just an odd little Canadian kid, mad for the stage and screen, just mad about it. My pa, when I told him I wanted to be an actress, said, Lord, you, why would anyone take a kid as ugly as you? Should have drowned you in the river. <laughs> I know, all you civilians think that all actors have to be stunners, but that ain't true. Gals like me are what we in the business call character actresses. I didn't need to be pretty as long as I was funny. And funny, I could be. <sighs> a traveling stock company came to town, and I stalked them and pestered them and begged them to take me with them, stood outside their rooming house every night, waiting for the manager and talked myself into the company with my big mouth. And by God, if I hadn't, I wouldn't be here today. I was 14, although I told them I was 18. Not like anyone asked for my papers. And they was happy to see the back of me back home. I sent my mama half my wages, though, like a good girl. Changed my name from Layla Marie Kerber. Dropped off the L and the K and stole the dressler from an awning somewhere near Niagara Falls. My pa thinks I did it so as not to embarrass the family. But I really did it so as I could have something of my own. My own name. The troupe was a wonderful school in many ways. Often, a bill was changed on an hour's notice or less. Every member of the cast had to be a quick study. I made my professional debut as a chorus girl named Cigarette in the play Under Two Flags. Mortifying the dance I had to do, but thrilling as well, you know? The best part I played was Barbara in the Black Hussars, in which I would hit a baseball into the stands. I had a hell of a swing, and the folks loved to see a gal with some muscle in her. I worked in the touring companies until 1891, getting quite popular with the folks. But you get tired of the rover's life for all its charm. And anyway, now I had a name I could bank on. I moved to New York City and debuted on Broadway at the Fifth Avenue Theater in Waldemar, the Robber of the Rhine, which only lasted five weeks. I actually had dreams of becoming an operatic diva or tragedian, but the writer of Waldemar, Morris Barrymore, convinced me that my future was in comedy roles. Oh, recognize that name? Here I am years later in a picture with his sons, Lionel and John. 
In 93, I was cast as the Duchess in Princess Nicotine, where I met Lil Russell. Lillian Russell. Never talk to me about women being catty and jealous. I wouldn't be dying in luxury here today if it weren't for the friendship of women. Oh, Lil. She called me the greatest low comedian of the world. Why should I not be proud? Beauty fades, but laughs, laughs are eternal. Anyway, thanks to Lil introducing me around, I landed my first starring role on Broadway. I put my big face, farm girl's body, and tour training to good use. I used to improvise moments where I would carry my big, handsome co-star around the stage. We planned them, of course, but the rubes out in the house were convinced I did it on the spur of the moment. Those rubes would roar with delight. I was making... $100 a week. Bought a home for my folks on Long Island and tried to form my own troupe. Not a success. My first bankruptcy. Out of three. Don't that beat all? Money just sieved out of me. But what was money for if not to live? Really live? <gasps> ah, ah. Mm. Mr. Mayor. He only lets me work three hours a day. He'd be furious if you knew I was working my jaw the way I am. I'm supposed to be resting. My stand-in is on the set right now, running lines with Jean and Lionel and Billy and shooting the long shots. They call me in when they're ready to film me. And not a second sooner by Mr. Mayor's decree. Although he's dog and ponying me tonight. Ah, but it's not every day a gal like me wins a big award. I like shooting. I like being in the thick of the action, watching my fellow stars like Jean Harlow, who, for all her reputation, is simply a doll. She brings me soup from the commissary every day and reads the funnies to me while we're waiting for the lights to be set. But like I say, women have always been generous. We know how hard it is, how many games we need to play to keep working. Pretty, ugly, it don't matter. Being a woman, the chips get stacked against you. And my life has always been up and down. But that's because I like risk. I like to try new things. Moved to London in 1907 and started making $1,500 a week on the circuit. Came back to the USA to try producing again and lost my shirt, my camisole, and all my delicate undery things. Huge debt. You better sit down. I owed the bank $30,000. I just paid the last of my debt three years ago in 1930. Long time to have that sort of thing hang over you. I did okay, as long as I was making people laugh. But when I couldn't work. I toured the U.S. during World War I, selling Liberty Bonds and entertaining the men. Some infantrymen in France named a cow after me. The cow was killed, leading to Marie Dressler killed in line of duty headlines. I had a hard time convincing people that the report of my death had been greatly exaggerated. Right around then, I had my biggest success on stage with Tilly's Nightmare. I'd done a couple of shorts in the movies, but being a stage snob and busy, I never really found the time. I was 44. The scuttlebutt is that when he was a pup and I a star, I helped my fellow Canadian, Max Sennett, to get a job in the theater. 
Mac becomes the owner of a motion picture studio, and he convinces me to come here to Hollywood and turn Tilly's Nightmare into a silent film. The first full-length, six-reel motion picture comedy. I owned it outright. Had to rewrite it from the blithering mess the original playwright had made of it. Francis Marion was a writer I hired to help me. Smart little thing, a suffragette, had a hell of a time getting hired. So I gave her a job and some funds. According to Mac, his movie budget of $200,000 meant that he needed a star whose name and face meant something to every possible theater goer in the United States and the British Empire. Well, <laughs> flattery got him everywhere. I cast Charlie Chaplin as my leading man, giving him his first big chance, and my darling friend Mabel Norman starred in the movie. Mabel Norman, lovely and funny. Did I steal the Tilly movies from her? No. Or Chaplin? Lord, no. We were at the top of our game. We were brilliant. And at least two of us were generous about it. Mabel's been gone three years. Makes you wonder. Makes you wonder if giving all of our hearts and souls to our audiences leaves us with very little for ourselves. Tilly's punctured romance was a hit with audiences. I made two sequels. Right then, the Spanish flu started making its rounds. People started staying away from the theater. It became tough to finance films. Two years. Made a huge hole in my finances. And honestly, I wasn't able to dig myself out for a good long time. When things got more or less back to normal in 21, the world was youth mad and flapper crazy. I used to stay busy by visiting veterans' hospitals and making the boys laugh. At 48, I was sure that was all I was good for. Yeah, I had hard times. Hard times. I lived them, kid. <laughs> Couldn't get arrested for nearly a decade. Worked as a hot dog vendor, that's true. Nearly threw myself out a window a few times. But darling Frances Marion, she had, in this time, become a well-respected knockout screenwriter. She saw me in some little dump show and decided that the help I had given her, she was going to give me back tenfold. She knew. She knew I had the goods and I could deliver. I, I hadn't made a flick in years. Hollywood moved away from silent films. But talkies were a breeze for me. I have a good voice and I know how to use it. Francis persuaded Irving Thalberg at Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer to give me the role of Marthy in Anna Christie, opposite, you know who, I want to be alone. Playing opposite Garbo. I wasn't trying to walk away with the picture. It ain't Garbo's fault that the public, they understand me. I am them, you see. No mask, no lie. I I've been through it. Pain, war, poverty, I've suffered. And they like me for being truthful. They like me for not being better than them, but equal. And I'm so grateful. My mug opens pictures. Opens them. I hate to brag, but I'm the number one box office attraction this month. My house is always full of bouquets from grateful theater owners and fan mail. So much fan mail from all over the world. But it's them who've gone through the depression, them that counts on me to make them feel better. Them's the ones I should be giving bouquets to, the people.
I'm dying. Don't anyone kid a kidder. These docs with their rubber mask faces and pompous voices pretending they can make me well. I'm a goner. But I'm going on top and ain't no one can tell me different. I'm just mad I can't enjoy it a while longer. Look at me. I'm wearing silk, real lace. This jacket, pure mink. If I'm going to rot from the inside, I'm going to rot with my diamonds bobbing my ears. And once my Duesenberg Model J has taken me to my last resting place, it's going to Minnie Steele Cox and her husband, Jerry. Minnie's been taking care of me for 20 years. Along with the car, I'm setting them up with some cash. Minnie's been talking about going back to Georgia and opening up a place of comfort for her people. I hope that what I can give her can do that and give them a bit of a living besides. Min never abandoned me, even when I couldn't pay her much. <sighs> it isn't hard to get through a flick, even when you feel as bad as I do. Cooker knows exactly what he wants, and I deliver, like falling off a log. There's no pain when you're on. Dr. Theater does his job. And none of that rivalry nonsense about Harlow. We're colleagues. She's a fine comedian herself. Fine and true. And she's heaps nicer than Wallace Beery ever was. If I only could let the world know how grateful I am for all that I've been given. I have everything now that anyone could desire. But time. More time. Time to make you laugh again. That's all this old trooper ever wished for or wanted. But an Oscar's nice, too. I want everyone to know Marie died happy that she made you happy. And that's enough to make a whole ugly life beautiful. The lights. The lights are up for me. I'd better get to set. was 90028 Hollywood Marie Dressler Good Gal written by Diana Bravano directed by Cameron Watson starring Julia Pletcher as Marie Dressler We owe a massive debt of gratitude to our stellar audio producer Jeff Gardner who is also our sound designer and foley artist Thank you to co-designer Andrea Almond This beautiful original music is created by Ellen Mandel Thank you Ellen Neil Wogensen is our sound editor. Antia's Theatre Company is an actor-driven ensemble that explores timely and timeless work grounded in our passion for the classics. We illuminate diverse human experiences through performance, training, and community engagement. Anna Rose O'Halloran is our producing executive director. Our artistic director is Bill Brocktrup. Nicole Samsel, our director of operations, is moving on to a new job in another state. Nicole, we couldn't have done any of these plays without you. We'll miss you and wish you great success in your future ventures. A big thank you to all of our writers, directors, and fabulous actors. 
You are the lifeblood of the theater. And a huge thank you to all of our supporters and donors. Your generosity has helped keep Antius thriving. We're so glad to have you as part of our artistic community. For more information about the Zip Code Plays or to support Antius, please visit our website at zipcodeplays.info. While there, check out the original illustrated maps of each of our zip codes created by artist Cynthia Jaquette. You can also visit highlights of each neighborhood in person or virtually by taking the Zip Code Plays tour. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a rating or review. It really helps new listeners find us. If you're looking for great theater in Hollywood, be sure to check out our friends at the Fountain Theater, where they explore plays that reflect the immediate concerns and cultural diversity of contemporary Los Angeles and the nation. I'm Ramon Diocampo. On behalf of all of us at Antius, thank you for listening. <laughs>